the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity and have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 99, which along with Psalm 97 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, April the 20th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, as I told you, we're, we're kind of a mishmash of lessons in the Old Testament over the next little bit. So today we're in Micah's prophecy. Yesterday we were in Isaiah, and the day before that we were in Jonah. So now we're in the prophecy of Micah in the seventh chapter, verses 7 through 15. We're continuing in the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, and in the book of Acts, chapter 3, the first 10 verses. So in the Micah prophecy, remember yesterday, we had talked about waiting on the Lord, not taking matters into our own hands, but but waiting on the Lord, waiting for him to act, because the peoples were choosing different paths when only one had been given in, in the, the exile in Babylon. And he told the, told the rest, these other two decisions are wrong decisions. You need to go to Babylon. It will not go well with you if you choose your own way here. And yet they did. So here in Micah, what we have is, is Micah, who has been persecuted for his prophecy, just like every other prophet was. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He's not going to make his own defense. He's waiting for the Lord to defend him and to deal with his adversaries in this situation. And he's willing to wait. He's been obedient. He's done everything he knew God told him to do and say. And now he says, I'm going to wait for the Lord to come and defend me. He says, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. In other words, you're not going to triumph over me. The Lord has the final say in all these matters. I'm not going to spend all my life defending myself. My guy that I consider my mentor in ministry was Chuck Murphy. And, and Chuck had a favorite saying, is sooner or later, John, everybody gets your number. So he didn't defend himself when people came against him, he, he believed the Lord would do that. And so he did not spend all his time defending himself, and rightfully so, because he saw these people had, had come against him like an enemy, and they were acting in a wicked way towards him. And he, he just said, John, everybody gets your number sooner or later. And I believe that with all my heart. I may not ever see it happen, but I believe that that ultimately that's exactly the case. And that's what Micah has said, I'm going to do. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes justice, judgment for me, he's saying, look, I'm not perfect. I understand that, that I get the indignation of God because I've sinned against him, but he will plead my cause here and execute judgment for me because I have confessed my sin to him. He'll bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where's the Lord your God? In other words, all this stuff is happening to you. Where's your God? Huh? Where is he? Why didn't he protect you? Because remember, they had gotten into syncretism. They were worshiping Baals and everything else. My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. And there he's talking about his enemy. A day for the building of your walls. 
in that day the boundary shall be far extended in that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds and so this is speaking of the time at the end when nations war against nations and God judges the nations but those remnants in all those places all over the world will come and they'll come to Zion. They'll come to the heavenly Jerusalem when it comes down out of heaven and the new Jerusalem is established on the earth. But the rest of the earth will be a wasteland because of the sin of its inhabitants. Shepherd your peoples. He's pleading with the Lord now. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So the Lord promises that he'll bring them back. That now it looks awful that they, they dwell in, the, in a forest in the midst of a garden land. What a wonderful little uh, vision that, that is that's cast for us there. You can just see this thing and, the, and see that they're in a forest in the middle of a garden so that they don't have anything. They're clearly in hiding in this place, but then the, the plea is that they'll bring them out, as he did of old. And, and it's exactly what the Lord promised through Jeremiah on multiple occasions when he would say things like, it would be, be no longer said that the Lord brought us out of Egypt, for now it will be the Lord brought us out of this exile, as, as he had done the previous one, but they will have a personal experience of this one, and so it will seem in some ways greater in their eyes to have been redeemed from Babylon. In the gospel, Jesus is continuing to explain to the disciples how to live and what it means to be his disciple. That's really all he's, he's getting at in this, because a disciple is someone who loves their teacher, who is like, like a shepherd leading sheep. They have bonded on that teacher. They would be encouraged not only to teach the things that the teacher taught and, and begin everything they do with a takeoff on, as Rabbi so-and-so says, blah, blah, and then you go on from there. Well, not only that, they were encouraged to teach with the same mannerisms and the same sort of cadences and all that kind of stuff. And so they would, they would be taught to be like their teacher, like their own rabbi. And Jesus is saying, what does it mean to be my disciple? It means the same thing, but it means on a different level because I'm going to let you keep your individuality. I'm encouraging you to use your individuality to to preach the gospel, but at the same time, you're all going to partake of the same spirit because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He says that the only way that this is going to work is for us to coexist and that is this, my spirit to exist within you, because that way we're going to be one, and that oneness will be the way in which you serve, just exactly the way I serve the Father now. He says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so what would that pruning look like? Well, it would look like the cutting off of the sin in our lives— so that we can bear more fruit. So it's those, those, those things in our lives that, that don't bear fruit and won't bear fruit that have to be pruned away. <laughs> Already you're clean because the word I've spoken to you. So we, the word has cleansed you. Abide in me and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. So he explains the parable that he's told, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit he takes away, and every one that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit, as a way of saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I don't want you to misunderstand the parable of the vine and the branches. Now, I went to a church, um, I don't know how long ago this was now, probably 30 years ago, actually. Um, we had a, a, a good, solid priest, evangelical priest, who who was there. And then when he left, the bishop appointed somebody who I would say might not be a believer. They certainly didn't believe most of the things that I believe. Um, they they believe things that, um, just non-biblical things, that the spirit of the age kind of things. So that was a temporary thing. And then there was an interim rector, and then they brought in another guy. And that guy came in, and somebody asked him how he interpreted the Bible. Do they, did he interpret it literally or figuratively? What's well, a silly question, because it's both. So he said, no, I, I interpret it um, figuratively, because a literalist would have to read the passage that I just read to you and, and conclude that Jesus must be a green leafy substance. Well, it just showed me what an idiot he was. He chooses to, to understand the Bible, all of it, figuratively, is what he was trying to tell us. While I don't understand it just literally, I understand this is a figure of speech. But he couldn't understand anything was meant literally. And that's when I decided I needed to go. Because plain statements could be then reinterpreted, however you wanted it to be interpreted. So when Jesus says, I'm, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, that can be reinterpreted because that's a figurative kind of a statement. All the things that Jesus says are figurative kind of statements then. Any of his commandments, any of his teachings, everything in the Bible, nothing should be taken literally. That, if, if you, that, you're the one who chose to give the example, not me. So, so we've got to be careful in the way that we interpret the Word of God. It's important. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He, he's using this word a lot abiding, remaining, all that stuff. It's a big word in John. It's a, it's a big part of John's vocabulary. But the question then becomes is, what, what does it mean? You know, and, and I remember having a, a conversation, discussion, argument, whatever it would be, with a group of people over what does this mean to abide? Is it a passive thing or is it an active thing? Well, it's a simple thing. It's both. Again, it's not either literal or figured. It's not either passive or active. It's both. And, and he says, if anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. And it goes back to Psalm 37, where you're going to set your sights on the Lord and then he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, the desires of your heart have to be changed in order to match up with what God intends and wants to give you. And it's the same here. If you abide in him, then then you are becoming more and more like him in every single way, including your attitude and your desires. And so the things that you are asking for will be given to you simply because you know what to ask for. By this, he says, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What is this fruit we're talking about? We're, we're talking about fruit in our own lives. For one thing, it's fruit of righteousness, but also fruit in the sense of um, being able to speak the word to others and teach and, and to give to others and have them receive. 
so that we can bear much fruit, the more we're like him. The more things that, that we will be doing like Jesus did, the more we abide in him. As my father has loved me, so have I loved you and abide in my love. And that I can understand, right? I mean, that, that I know is passive. That means that I have peace. It means that, that I have comfort in all things because I know that Jesus loves me. <clears throat> and then, though, he says, okay, how do you abide in his love? He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, we've got to do the things Jesus told us to do. If we want to abide in him, it can't just be a passive thing of, well, I spend time in prayer every day. No, it it has to be active obedience to his commandments. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, they're getting ready to experience something other than joy when Jesus is arrested and then ultimately crucified and dies. But he's telling them all these things in advance in order that when they experience the, the, the blessing of that later, then, then their joy will indeed be full because it will be as though Jesus were with them. And that's the way the Holy Spirit's intended to operate in our lives, as though Jesus himself were with us. Because whatever the Father is, so is the Son. Whatever the Father and the Son are, so is the Spirit. And so in that same way, we can experience that personal relationship with Him through the Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives. And what the Spirit is going to do is lead us not just into all truth in understanding, but but He's going to lead us into the works that He's prepared beforehand that we're to walk in, as Paul tells the Corinthian church. In the Acts passage today, we, we, we're past the day of Pentecost, and the, the church is being established, and now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, is three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this is the time of day when he would be brought to the temple so that he would be able to beg, and because he's lame from birth, he has every right to beg as he's incapable of providing for himself any other way. So then seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Okay. It sounds like Charles Stanley. I mean, I love Charles Stanley, but if you listen or watch him preach, I I can't tell every single sermon I've ever heard him preach somewhere along the way. He said, now look at me. And that's what Peter does. Look at us. You know, so, so he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. This guy's vulnerable, right? I mean, he, he's not in a position to challenge a commandment given to him because, well, his expectation is that if I, if I look at them, then, then I'll be getting something from them. Peter said, I have no silver and gold. The guy must have been crestfallen at that point. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This is a man lame from birth. And he took him by the right hand, Peter did, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, man lame from birth, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. This guy's entire life has changed. He's been a beggar his whole life. He's been lame his whole life. Now, however... His lot in life has changed. 
he's able to do for himself. He's able to not be carried anymore. He's able to have a life like everybody else has because of the healing that he received through Peter and John. But in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that's the only stipulation here is, is that, that they didn't heal me. I was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so they're invoking the power of God. Now, the funny thing is, is that we can look and say, well, okay, so there's the fulfillment of anything you ask in my name. But notice they didn't ask for everybody to be healed. They knew who could be healed. And so they focused on this guy. And Peter knows that the Spirit is there for healing in this particular instance. And so he asks in accordance with God's will, and this man receives the benefit of that. And then contrast this with the, uh, the reaction of the crowd here with the reaction of the crowd we saw when we uh, encountered the man born blind in John 9. Remember, after that guy receives healing, now the, one of the differences is he goes away. right? He has to go away and wash and then come back. He comes back seeing, and therefore now the crowd's thinking, oh, there's a substitute. This is a game. Jesus sent that guy away. He's like a magician, right? He sent the guy away, and a guy who looks a lot like him came back, but he could see. And so they denied that it was him, and then they had to call his parents in, and then they had to say, no, no, it's, it's him. We know it's not an imposter. He's not a body double. It's him. And so, that, But people questioned whether or not the man had been healed because he went away and then came back. This is a magic trick with a body double, right? So here, though, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Now, this crowd would have, would have heard all the things that Jesus said and did, that, not all of them, because some somebody didn't do in Jerusalem, but the crowd would have, would have had some exposure and experience of Jesus. Because this is, you know, you're talking about with just about two months after the, um, the crucifixion. So we've got these, these people who, who are all now filled with wonder and amazement what had happened to him because they recognized this guy as that guy, the one who has been there lame from birth, been laid at the beautiful gate of the temple day after day after day after day for most of his life. And, and here, though, they recognize that this incredible thing has happened and they know that it was done in the name of this man that everybody has, has uh, decided is not the Messiah, was not the Messiah, and who had been put to death on a cross. But these people here claim that he was resurrected from the dead. And we know probably what happened on the day of Pentecost here in Jerusalem. And so now we're wondering, what's going on? How does the power flow through these men to heal this guy? And it's because they... They were abiding in Jesus. They were keeping his commandments to love one another and to love the Father. It's, it's a powerful thing when we walk in and abide in his love and when we, we obey him in every detail. Great things are possible.